If you would open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 9 through 27 today. We are looking at the last two chapters, looking at the last looks of Jesus that Jesus actually gives us in all the Bible. And we are in the second last look. Now, there's a man named Roy Atwood, and he wrote an article called My Father's Legacy. And in it, he describes his father's passing away in this way. I'm going to quote it. The days of my father's life were by reason of strength and God's grace 80 years. He died a year ago. We still grieve his death, of course, but as the pain of his passing fades, we struggle with a new pain. And that new pain is the realization of how swiftly the memory of someone as close as a husband, a father, a friend can fly away. If each day dims the memory of the contours of his face and the sound of his voice, what will we remember of him 10 or 20 years from now? What will his children's children know of him? His life, his hopes, his fears, his failures and his successes, his view of God's world. What will be the legacy of his life? Continues to quote, over time, we will forget the things he enjoyed. He loved the company of a well-oiled tools and rifles. He loved the rhythmic pulse of waves against the hull of his sailboat running ahead on a fresh breeze. However, over time, the waves will not reflect his image. And his precious tools and guns will be recycled into someone else's rusty barbecue or dented wheelbarrow. Continuing to quote, We'll forget the work of his hands. We'll forget his strengths and his weaknesses. We'll even forget how his illusions of independence and self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency were shattered in 1998 when he fell off the roof of his home while cleaning the gutters in the rain and landed on the corner of a concrete sidewalk, breaking his spine between his shoulder blades. The fall almost killed him. In a split second, his pride and dreams and many of the things he loved most were gone. He never walked or worked in his shop or sailed again. He struggled with depression and suicide many times. He never wanted to be a burden to his wife or to his children. But his self-sufficiency was in an instant gone forever. The book I got this from, this tribute to the father, this is what the books responded to it. This loving account candidly exposes a truth hard to face, that all we build, love, and live for will fade away. The fading may take a minute or it may take a millennia, but time and erosion will ultimately erase all our accomplishments from human memory. We too will be forgotten. Inevitably, time will erode our significance. We want to be remembered. We want our work to have lasting meaning, yet we forget and will be forgotten. Now, I read this on Monday morning this week, and those of you that, those of you that know uh, a pastor's cycle, Sunday evening and Monday mornings are not the best time for pastors. And so as I was reading this, I was already in a dark mood, and I read this, and my response to it was, it really bothered me. I mean, it really bothered me. 
I sat there and I began to think over and over in my heart and my head, my kids will forget the contours of my face? Will I be forgotten? Who am I? I want to matter. I want my work to matter. I want my work to last. I want it to echo forever. Don't you? Don't you want to leave a mark? Don't you want to mean something? Don't you want your name to last forever? I think we all do. And this passage is for those of you that long for a lasting security and a lasting significance that does last forever and that no one can take away, not even you. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at verses 9 again through 27. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes, the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates and on the north three gates and on the south three gates and on the west three gates and on the wall. The city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and on the gates were made a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Now I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon or, sh- or to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for these pictures of Jesus in this book. And we thank you that by your spirit, you open our eyes to see them. And so now, Lord, we ask you to open our eyes to see that which we cannot see for ourselves and to hope and trust and rest and rely upon him whom we cannot, apart from you, do. So, Lord, we do acknowledge our desperation. And we acknowledge the desperation of trying to figure out who we are. And so, God, would you help us this morning, help me, help all of us to hear your word and to see Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. This is our second last look. Remember, our first look was found in 21, 1 through 8. Our second look is now 9 through 27. Now, the, the look is this. Our second look, our first look was what? It was looking at his loyal love. Now we're looking at his permanent presence with his people in his place. And we got that in verses 9 through 10. So you can look at that. We got the bride and we have the wife of the lamb, remember? And, and John's carried away and he's seen descending a holy city. And as the city is descending, it's almost like these metaphors and these pictures blur into each other and they lose their edge and you just get caught up in big pictures. First, he's talking about a bride and then he's talking about the wife of the lamb. And now we're into this holy city and it's descending. And the glory of the Lord is in its presence. And it shines with all those rare, valuable jewels. And so what we have is we have a permanent presence, the glory of God, with a permanent people in a permanent place. That's the big idea of this whole passage that we're looking at. That's the second last look. Now, what we have in this passage, however, is four angles of application. So we have this, his permanent presence with his people in his place. And the first application we saw last week was Jesus is coming for you. He's coming for you to make you permanently holy and happy. That was application number one. Application number two and three are found in verses 12 through 21. Application number four is found in 22 through 27. So I want us to get our bearings on this text. You know where we are and where we're heading. Today we're going to look at the next application. Next week, we'll pick up one more. And the week after that, we'll pick up the last. But remember, the main idea is a permanent presence with a people in a place. And that has tremendous implications and applications. So tremendous that God did not leave it up to us to kind of figure it out. You know, usually you have a, a doctrine and then, and then we have these applications that come from these doctrines and, and they really, it's hard to see how they actually came from the text. It might be good suggestions on how to live and how to get your life together and how to do things in the Christian life. And there's this broad chasm that's crossed from the doctrine to how we start applying it in our lives. Well, the, the Lord did not want to leave that chasm there for us. He gives us the application. He tells you this is what it is. This is how this is to be applied in our life. And that's what we're looking at. So let's look at the first or the second application. To find this application, we've got to measure the city. 
That's what's happening here. We've got to measure this city, this holy city, Jerusalem, that's coming down. We've got to measure the holy city. Now, what I want us to remember as we look here, that this holy city, in verse 10, take a look at it. The Spirit took him to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. What I want you to remember here is what we've already talked about. And that is that this holy city is the full application or the full realization the final and full fulfillment of the work of the second Adam. In other words, your salvation from justification when you're made right with God to now sanctification, which is part of our salvation as we're growing in grace and eventually in glorification when we're a permanent people made permanently holy and happy in a permanent place. This is all the fruit of This is all the fulfillment of the work of a second Adam. In other words, your salvation from beginning to end is a salvation by works. Merit. Obedience. Of the second Adam. Because the second Adam is doing what the first Adam failed to do from the very beginning from the very beginning it's not a new plan because Adam blew it from the very beginning the plan was that heaven on earth pictured in the garden would become heaven and earth united into a larger reality called the consummation called here in Revelation the new heavens and the new earth called here the holy city of Jerusalem And that was to be in the game plan from the very beginning. But it looked like the game plan was over when the first Adam did not merit it, did not work for it, did not obey God and take creation to the consummation. But we have a second Adam and the second Adam, just like his father, he worked six days and entered into the seventh day, the perfect day the Sabbath rest, the consummation. And so the second Adam dealt with the slithery serpent, dealt with and stomped on the head of the invader into the kingdom of God. The first Adam fell asleep at the post. The second Adam stomped on his head, as was promised in Genesis 3.15. And the stomping, it began when the incarnation took place. And it got real personal in the wilderness when when the serpent actually appeared and tempted the second Adam. And then it says at the end of that temptation, he went away and looked for a more opportune time to still do his work. So the temptation or the invader was constantly trying to get into the kingdom of God. And the son of man, the second Adam, stepped on his head, crushed his head. Bruised his heel by stomping on him. And it finally was complete and fulfilled when the cross crushed him. And God rose him from the dead with resurrection power. And so what I want you to remember is that Jesus laid down his life on the cross and rose from the dead for all of those who could not. For all of us, who are in the first Adam. 
for all of us who are covenant breakers, for all of us who merit and have worked for and earned the wages of sin is death. And the second Adam, he did it for Adam and Eve. And he did it for Noah. And he did it for David. And he did it for the true Israel. And he did it for Rahab and Tamar. And he did it for Mary. And he did it for Paul and Peter and John. And he did it for the 144,000 sealed in the book of Revelation. And he does it for all of us. All of us who trust in him. All of us who rely on the work and the worth of a second Adam. His work. And we enter into a permanent people, right? Now we need to remember that. Because what we're going to do... When we get into 12 through 21, we're going to take the measurements of this holy city. So what we need to remember is the holy city is coming down only because Jesus led creation to the consummation. Only because Jesus actually accomplished the work of salvation and actually brings this holy city down. He does it. He's done it. He's taken the garden, heaven on earth, and he stretched it over all of creation, which is called the new heavens and the new earth here. Because he's done that, now we're starting to measure the city. God wants you to, he's measuring the city because he thinks there's something important about measuring this permanent place and this permanent people with his permanent presence. As he measures it, there's something about that then that helps us now. There's something about measuring this that's to be, that's yet to happen, that gives you a here-ness, a nearness now. What is it? What is it? That's our second application, so let's keep moving here. Now, you've worked for 48 years. My dad just retired at age 70. He's worked for 48 years. You work for 48 years. You give the best years of your life to your work. You work hard. You work long hours. You worked in excellence and you worked for achievement. You worked to make a mark. You spent many sleepless nights because of the innumerable strains and the innumerable stresses that come from the toil of labor in this world's realm. I mean, we're all trying to get the newest and latest drug to get some sleep at night. Why are we so sleepless? Why can we not get to sleep? There's many reasons. The bottom line one is, is because we're still here in this world's realm. Where it's toil and it's sweat and it's thorns and it's thistles and it's heartache and it's pain and it's disappointment and it's discouragement and it's despair and it's darkness. Right. When necessary, you had many times away from your family. Now, not one week into your retirement, not one week into your retirement. And the name, your name is off the company register, replaced by someone else. Your name is off the payroll and replaced by someone else. And even that wonderful office that has your front name on it and your name on the desk is replaced, is taken off and replaced by someone else. And pretty soon, all measurements 
of your name and your identity are forgotten and lost. Now, you spent 10 years of intensive nurturing, sleepless nights, feeding them. Sleepless nights, changing their diapers. Sleepless nights, holding them while they cried. Sleepless nights, worrying about, will they know Jesus? Praying that God would have mercy on them. Cannot imagine how much you love this thing that keeps you up all night. Right? And then you start trying to figure out the terrible twos. And the terrible threes, terrible fours, (laughs) terrible fives, sixes, sevens, eight C's, nine C's, two C's, whatever. There are sleepy days trying to learn a foreign language that if someone was literally to pass by your house, they'd lock you away. As you're down there trying to communicate, right? You played itsy bitsy spider, you played this little pig, you've done it all. Now, the next 10 years of care look a little different, but now you're the chauffeur. You drive the car with all the friends, and you listen in on the conversations, and you chat and you talk, and you can't believe how your kids are growing up, right? And you think you have to go to HEB almost every day. You're making food for an army, and the army's winning. And you tell them about Jesus and you you wrestle with how and what does it look like to believe the gospel in this time in my life. And you wonder when they get to their teenage years if it's payback for your teenage years, right? Now you spend many nights worrying about them. You spend many nights worrying about how you're parenting them. You spend many a night wondering, will they call upon God as their God and not just their parents' God? Right. Well, then you spend the next 40 years wanting to be with them more and you can't. And you spend the next 40 years adding a whole new list to your worry list, grandchildren. And now it's sleepless nights praying that children and your children and their grandchildren Believe the gospel and know Jesus. And then after you die, the third generation won't even know your name. Maybe they'll know your name, but they won't know the who behind your name. The contours of your face disappear. And pretty soon, you're forgotten. Does this bother you? Was I the only one that got bothered by this on Monday? This bothers the daylights out of me. This bothers everyone in this room because no one wants to be forgotten. No one wants their name to fade away. It bothers us so much that some of us become workaholics. It bothers us so much that some of us run to escape 
And we'll escape with a prescription drug and we'll escape with some sort of narcotic that can get us into an escaping estate. We'll escape into alcohol. We'll escape into pornography. We'll escape into the TV. We'll escape into endless entertainment. You will be forgotten. And your name will not last. And the reason why it bothers us is because deep down in the core of your soul, you long for the security of a lasting identity. Because you were made to. And you were made for one. And the question is, what is it? You want to be someone, you want to matter, you don't want to be forgotten. Does that mean that you are a mom? Is that your core identity? Is your core identity a pastor? Is your core identity a business mogul? Mogul. Mongrel. Is your core identity a missionary? Is it a good Christian? Is it the MVP of the Super Bowl? Is your core identity your beauty? Is your core identity that you've been abused your whole life? Is your core identity that you're white, black, Hispanic, Asian, Tartar, Kazakh, Uzbek, Russian? Brothers and sisters, who are you? Who am I? Well, God answers us by getting out his tape measure. That's how he answers us. And he says, let's measure the holy city. And as I measure it, may your heart expand. And may your mind be filled with wonder that God would measure you. And so he looks at the Verses 12 through 13, he takes out his measuring rod or his tape measure and he measures four great high walls. I want you to look at that in 12 and 13. It had a great high wall, 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. Let's look at the great high wall, four great high walls. These four great high walls are facing every possible direction. You've got a great high wall facing the north. You've got a great high wall facing the south and east and west. Every possible direction is covered. Why? These great high walls provide a safety and security from anything that comes at you from any direction. If it comes from the north, boom. Comes from the south, boom. Comes from the east, comes from the west, it hits the wall. And these great high walls measure your security. Then we go from the great high walls. Now we move to the 12 gates again in 12 and 13. And at gates, the gates were 12 angels. Now you've got gates. You've got three gates on each of the side walls, three on the north, south, east, west, three gates on each wall, 12 gates at each gate is an angel, 12 angels. And immediately, those of us that have been reading the Bible, were, and we've read it in one sitting, if we were 
a person in this particular church that received the letter, and we've got these letters, all of a sudden, immediately in your mind flashes the cherubim. That grand, majestic angel that was just talked about in Revelation 4, but then was present way back in the beginning of all things. And remember what he did? He stood where heaven and earth touched in the garden. Now, heaven and earth did not touch all creation at that point. And that's a mistake by some folks today. They think we're still trying to get back to creation. We're not going back to creation. We're going back to the garden. To when heaven and earth stretches over the whole world. Okay? Now, at that garden, there's a flaming sword with a massive angel standing at the gate. And the reason why he's guarding the gate is because the original gatekeeper fell asleep and let an invader in and ruined paradise. And so now this one bars the way and he actually kicks out the original gatekeeper and bars his way because anything that's unholy cannot come into the holy. Right? And so what we get a picture of here is that these 12 angels standing at the 12 gates, whatever is inside those gates, whoever is inside those gates, we know it's very secure. And we know it's a very safe place. And we know there's no invader that can lay siege to this castle. Now we move down. To the overall dimensions of the gates, let's look down here. This, that verse 15, he takes out this gold measuring rod, and the city lies in four squares. Its length, the same of its width, the same of its height. So we have 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. So all the dimensions of this are equal. And what's fascinating is that New Testament scholars say the dimensions and the shape are the same as the most holy place in the temple. Just blown to immense proportions. So it is as if the most holy place where God actually dwelt on earth as he did in the garden and as he did in the ark and then as he did in the tabernacle and then as he did in the temple and particularly at the most holy place, this place is being mapped out, 12,000 stadia. The height is the same, the width is the same, the length is the same. And if you were to look at the raw physical data, this means... And calculated in physical terms, the city was 1,365 miles wide, long, and high. Now, that's ten times the distance between Dan and Beersheba. And remember, Dan was the border town to the north, and Beersheba was the border town to the south. That's ten times this distance, all the proportions and the immensity of the dimensions of this holy city coming down are. That would mean that the ceiling at the top was 1,365 feet in the air, which would take it into the path of orbiting satellites right now. And of course, the picture here and the point here is that this is not to be understood as physical data, but it's to be a picture of immensity, a picture of a border and of dimensions that are beyond your grasp to understand. 
you're safe, you're secure, and an invader can't get in those walls. The city is insurmountable. It's beyond siege. It's beyond imagination. It's beyond everything. One New Testament scholar said, John is not describing an eternally secure place. He's describing eternally secure people. The significance of the people is found in verse 12. Let's look at it. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates were 12 angels, and on the gates of the name and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Ah that's who's in these gates. The twelve tribes of Israel. Now what's fascinating, those of us that are kind of entering into Revelation midstream, we gotta we gotta catch you up just a little bit here. What's fascinating about this list is, is the names of the 12 tribes are not listed. Like in Revelation 7, the names of the 12 tribes are listed. And any time in those days, in the olden days, in the Old Testament, when Israel was about ready to go into battle, God would always have them take a census. And all the tribes would be laid out. And the, the fathers and the descendants would be laid out. And how many is in each tribe? And all 12 tribes would be laid out. When you get to Numbers and they're about ready to enter the Promised Land, guess what happens? A census is taken. God says, take a census. Let's take a census of God's people that are going into the promised land. And then the parallels are phenomenal because if you are an Old Testament reader and you get to Revelation 7 and you see that the tribes are numbered and a census is taken again before they enter into the supra-promised land, the holy city in Revelation 7. And so the picture that's being painted here is these Twelve tribes, or these 144,000, remember 12,000 in Revelation 7, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000, 12,000, 12 times 12 is 144, add your zeros, 144,000. All these numbers are not the main point. What the numbers are is pointing to the picture of a permanent people, God's people. And remember that the Old Testament list had the list of the 12 tribes, but the one in Revelation 7, it's, none, it's unlike any other Old Testament list. It's been whitewashed. The bad ones have been taken out. And Gentile concubine sons are added in. So it can't be literally Israel. Because the list won't let you do that. So 12, 144,000 sealed. They're pictures of God's people before and after they enter into the promised land. Okay? And so what we get here, and if you're still not convinced, you've got to look at what happens next. Let's look at 14. And on the wall, the city had 12 foundations. Now, remember, the names are written in the wall. And the walls are sitting on 12 foundations. The 12 foundations is not Israel. The 12 foundations is the 12 apostles. And that is because the people of God are created and grown, grown up by the message of the apostles, the witness of Jesus Christ. And so the people of God are defined 
by the apostles' message. They're created by the message. They're shaped by the message. They're formed by the message. They're justified by the message. They're grown in grace by the message. They're strengthened by the message. They're healed by the message. They're forgiven by the message. They're taken to glory by the message. That is the foundation of it all. Okay? So now, we've come full circle. Let's go back to our question. Who are you? Who am I? God answers by way of a tape measure, and he says, measure your identity by this. Here it is. You are mine, he says. You are my permanent people. You are known by me. You are known to God. You are my sons and my daughters. You are worshipers of the living God. That's your core identity. And that person's criticisms of you can't touch this. Your failure on the athletic field can't touch this. Your incredible success and gifts as a communicator or a leader can't touch this. The abuse you received at the hands of your own parents can't touch this. It's secure if you're his. So your deepest core identity is you are his. You're known by God. You're a worshiper of God. And that's as secure as the picture and the measuring tape that God takes out himself. And his whole purpose in measuring it for you was so that you would become more secure. And you would begin to rely and rest in the security of who you are as he determines. Not as the world determines. Not even as you determine. Because you can't, and I can't, we can't figure ourselves out half the time. Who am I? I'm confused. And you stay up late at night trying to figure it out. And even though you don't know who you are, he knows who you are. You're known by me, he says. You're mine. Now the one who sits on the throne knows you. And it's all summarized in 22 and 23. This kind of summarizes the tape measure. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty of the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And what we get here is the central core identity of those within the walls is they're known by God and they're worshipers of the glory of God. And that's our core identity. So you're not defined by your father's lack of love and you're not defined by that sin that you hope no one figures out. And you're not defined by your lot in life. You're defined by God. And he says, you're mine. And I'll always remember you and I will never forget you even though time and your family And your friends will. 
temporarily. And then you get to see each other again. And they go, oh, it's you again. I remember you. Right? And I grab my kids and I make them look at every, every crease in my face. Do you remember this line? That was you at 10. Do you remember this line? Right? Okay. So Christian, well, let's do this. If you look at verse 27, this is where we do not want to be. But nothing unclean will ever enter in, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's the, there it's saying it in a different way. What matters, your deepest identity is whether you're written in the book as his, as his child, right? And so do not stay outside Do not be outside where it's false worship. Come inside to true worship. And that's why the Lamb came. He came to be slain. And He came to lead you and any sinner that trusts Him and rests in Him to take you to these walls and within these gates and to be a permanent people in a permanent place with His permanent presence. And Christian, if you're free... If you are here, you are free to repent of your identity crisis right now. Right now, we're free to repent of our identity crisis. I'm free to repent of the demanding desires that seek to define me. My demanding desire for respect. I'm free to repent of that. That's not my identity. I'm free to repent of the sin that has been done to me. And I have identified myself in that I'm abused and I'm worthless and I don't have a good identity, right? You're free to repent of your great gifts that we take pride in because that's not your deepest core identity. You're given those and you are given those as an expression of your core identity which is to be a worshiper. See the difference? So you're free to rely on Jesus for a secure, lasting identity. You're his now. You're defined by him. You're a worshiper of the living God. And now you're free to be refreshed in a whole new way of living, in a whole new way of motivation, in a whole new way of going about your life. Because who you are can't be touched. You are so secure in what he says is true of you and how he has made you a worshiper and a permanent people that you now go out And all of life becomes an expression of worship before this God. And so all the gifts you've been given, the talents you've been given, and yes, even the pains and the sufferings you were given, they don't go into the core to define you. They now become the expression and the ways in which you actually demonstrate worship and glory to God. Isn't that the point where in Matthew it says, May they see your good works and give praise to your Father in heaven? Why? Because your good works don't define you. Your good works are an expression that you are defined as his. See the difference? And so, I would say this to those of us that do not know Jesus. Don't stay outside any longer. Come in. Come into these gates through the only gate. And for those of us that do know Jesus, repent of your ID crisis. Repent. And rely on the one who defines you. And then let this defining of you refresh you. Let it, 
Let it seep into your mind and into your bones. Let it seep into the way you relate to other people. So if you're not defined and you're not controlled by how they think of you, just think how you'll start interacting with people now. You might say some hard things when you need to say some hard things. You might say some kind things when you need to say some kind things, but you'll be real and authentic, maybe for the first time in your life. Okay. One night you won't be able to sleep, and your mind will race down every hurt word that was said to you. One night you won't be able to sleep, and your mind will race and run for comfort in those dark places in your heart. One night you won't be able to sleep because your mind will rewind your failure over and over and over again. One night you won't be able to sleep because your mind will be running the comparison chart with your friend or that church member or that business associate, looking at their gifts, looking at yours. Eh. Uh, looking at this, looking at you, uh, and you feel worse and worse and worse. And deep inside, if you listen carefully, you can hear the battle in your soul. Who am I? Who am I? And then, see the measuring tape. God says, this is who you are. Shh. Oh, I ran out of tape. It's 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. It's immense. You're mine. And I will not forget you. And I will remember you always. You're a worshiper of me. And you can take that to eternity. Amen.